just good. It's been really good. Um, all the Word of God is good. And it's, that's exactly what we want to talk about today is the Word of God. And, and where this fits in the context, we, where we've been so far in Hebrews is, if I could sum it up very simply, it would just be that Jesus is better. We've said that before. The writer of Hebrews is laboring to point his readers to, it's time to be real, by the way, if y'all do be real, don't break out your, don't, don't do it, okay? Post a late one today. Just trust me on this. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, anyway, um, the writer is, is saying, look away from be real and look to Jesus. Look to him as everything that you need. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than David. And last week we talked about fearing not entering the rest that God has provided through the death, life, burial, resurrection of Jesus and fearing not entering that rest and striving to enter that rest as those who are believers. Um, so that brings us to today in verse 12, which again is very well known for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How many of y'all have heard that verse before? Yeah. If you've been around a church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that. Very famous, uh, very often quoted. But I think it would serve us well to read verse 12 again along with verse 11, which we finished last week. So let me start in verse 11 and then read verse 12 with it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for... The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as we do so many times, we've got to ask the question, what's the for for here? And and, and again, when this verse is quoted, it's, it's, it's an underwhelming pre-thought. We don't really say it, you know, for the Word of God. Which is that's that's all right, but it's here for a reason, right? The Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write for in this place at this time for a specific reason. So this passage starts with the word for, and what it's going to talk about, it's going to talk about the Bible as God's word, and not just the Bible, as we'll see in a minute, and the ability of God's word, its power to divide. And discern. And it surely is that. And again, but why this for? Donald Guthrie, guy who wrote a commentary, I, I find it hard to say commentator because we live in Appalachia and we think potatoes when we hear taters. So. Um, Donald Guthrie, who wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, says this A strong connection undoubtedly exists between this verse and the last, verse 12 and verse 11. The warning was based, in fact, on the nature of the divine revelation. It was of such a character that its claims could not be dismissed as of no consequence. Indeed, Guthrie writes, the powerful qualities of the word are described by means of an impressive metaphor which emphasizes not only the activity but also the effectiveness of the word of God. End of quote. See, I don't miss that. I mean, it's common knowledge. It's, it's, it's 
kind of a duh statement to say verse 12 follows verse 11. But verse 12 is not a standalone sentence or a new thought even. It, along with verse 13, which we'll cover today, is the logical conclusion, giving a logical justification for what we looked at last week. Fear missing God's rest. Strive to enter that rest so that you don't fall away like those who did fall away in the wilderness during the time of the Exodus, during the time of Moses. And fear and strive for that rest that they missed for. Because. Because what? For the Word of God. So our focus today is on God's Word. Now you say, isn't it always? And I certainly hope it is. But here, and this, this, this was probably the most interesting aspect of studying for this passage, the Word of God draws our attention to the Word of God. And after calling us to fear missing God's rest, and then to strive to enter into that rest, the author says, for the Word of God. The Greek phrase there is logos hotheos. Or logos ha theos, if you're from West Virginia like me. Logos ho theos. So what's the author referring to? Is the author referring to the Bible? Well, yes and no. The author of Hebrews did not set out, sit down one day and say, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. He didn't do that, right? He's just writing a letter or really a message to these struggling Hebrew followers of Jesus to encourage them to look to the sufficiency of Jesus in their walk of faith. So this letter couldn't serve to draw their attention to what we call the Bible now with these 66 books that make up its contents. So he's not talking about what we would call the Bible. So was he just talking about the Old Testament? The Old Testament, the the Old Covenant, the Law and the Prophets that David mentioned this morning through Spurgeon? Maybe, possibly, because the Old Testament was these scriptures that the New Testament writers would have referred their readers to. What else could have been pointing them to when he says the Word of God? Well, when we look at John's Gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word. Oh, I'm in the New Living. How did that happen? I'm going to read the ESV. I mean, I'm not against the NLT. I've used it before, obviously, but let me read the ESV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Preparing you for Advent there, by the way, when we say that. And then in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory... Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here in John, what does the Word refer to? It refers to Jesus. Jesus was the Logos, the capital L Logos, the Word of God. Jesus was and is the Word, the Logos of God. The writer of Hebrews had said, remember, back at the beginning of the book, let me see if I'm out of the New Living Translation. I'm not, oh no. I'll read it out of the ESV. You're going to have to trust me, okay? Uh, Back at the very beginning of this book, Hebrews 1, 1 1-3, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, the Word, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the Word of his power. In these last days, the writer says, God has spoken to us by his Son. God spoke through Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God. And while I do believe this thought is at least implied in Hebrews 4.12, I don't think the writer is simply referring to either the Old Testament or even just Jesus. I think he's using the phrase, the Word of God, and this is important because this is overarching to everything we're going to talk about today. So listen, pay attention. When he uses the phrase Word of God, I take him to be referring to God's revelation of himself all through history. Okay? God's revelation of himself all through history. God has spoken. He has made himself and his will known. And here in Hebrews, in warning his readers to make sure they don't miss God's rest like those who didn't believe, the writer is calling on the readers to make sure that they look to all that God has done to make Himself known. Because if they look to know and understand God, they must place their faith in Him to find true rest. Again, the focus here is on rest. The focus is, is, is on a, a contrast between fear and rest, belief and unbelief. Okay? And that's what, when we, talk, when we get here in a minute, where we're talking about division... What is the Word of God going to divide? And it's going to divide between those. There's going to be two camps today. Fear and rest. Unbelief and belief. And the Word of God is going to be the divisor. Amen. The thing that divides between those two camps. And everybody falls into one of those two camps. And it is the Word of God that determines which camp you are in. And that's important. Because if they look to know and understand Him, they place their faith in Him, they will find true rest. But if the readers don't look to and put their faith in God through all the avenues God has used, the Old Testament, the unfolding New Testament at the time of this writing, and the life and ministry of Jesus the Word Himself, if they don't look to those things, they run the risk of not knowing God and thus failing to enter into His rest. Later in the book, the writer of Hebrews will specifically call on his readers to be those who are, quote, Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we can certainly look to Jesus to see who God is and what God's like, and we can look to the Old Testament to see God revealing himself from creation onward. And again, I just love the, the law and the prophets thing this morning. We look there and can see God too. We can see him establishing his covenants in the Old Testament with the people and calling out a specific group of people to call his own and delivering them and establishing a kingdom for them to the praise of his glory. We can look at the Gospels and the epistles in the New Testament and see the unfolding of the mysteries of God hidden for ages and now revealed through both Jesus and the church. And in all of this and in all of nature and through all of history, we can see God. We can hear God. We see Him revealed. We hear Him speak. Let me tell you what to not go looking for out there somewhere is to have God speak to you outside the Scriptures today. 
You say, but I know, I know his voice. I do too. It's in black and white. And in some of y'all's Bible's red. Well, I really believe God told me this. Does it jive with the scripture? Because I know that's what he said. We can hear God today. He has not been silent throughout history. He will not be silent throughout history until eternity future. We can hear Him. We can see Him revealed. We can hear Him speak. And this revelation of Himself is there to help us now, like it was all through both Old Testament and New Testament history, and will be there until the final revelation of His full glory is given when Jesus sets up the promised kingdom and destroys the works of the evil one and rules for eternity in righteousness, justice, peace, and love. So, we're saying this Word of God is referring to God's revelation of Himself throughout all history. Now, from now on, you hear this verse quoted, don't just think about the Bible. Listen, we're Bible people, okay? Providence Bible Church, okay? We're, we're big on Bible. I'm not saying disregard the Bible, but I'm saying when you think of this verse from now on, don't just think about the Bible. Think about God's full revelation of Himself and everything we need is found in Scripture. We'll talk about that in a minute. But don't just think, oh, he's talking about the Bible, because he's not. He couldn't have been because it wasn't compiled yet, okay? So, uh, okay, so then, why is the writer referring to God's revelation of himself all throughout history here? What's he doing? For this word of God, this revelation of God and his plan is to, spelled with an A, affect us. This revelation of God and His plan is supposed to affect us. And how does He say it does affect us? Well, He says this revelation, this Word of God, is several things actually. Living, active, sharp, piercing, discerning. We're going to look at living, active, sharp, piercing, discerning. Okay, We're going to break those down to see why and how the Word of God this revelation of himself, how it is those things. That's weird verbiage stuff there. So we'll deep dive into this to see what this means and how it affects us and how we should respond to it. So we'll take the first two together, okay? Living and active. They kind of form a couplet of sorts, living and active. What does it mean that God's revelation of himself is living and active? Now, if you talk Constitution, U.S. Constitution with people, Right? They'll say either it was set, it's static, or it's a living document that's supposed to change according to the needs of the society. And I just divided this room into two camps. <laughs> Actually, probably three. One group's going, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't really matter to me. Okay? Is the Constitution a living document? I don't think it is. For it to be a living document, we have to have um, amendments. Through a 75% vote, and you're going, wow, a civics lesson this morning. I just couldn't wait to get my extra hour of sleep so I could come have a <laughs> civics lesson this morning, right? Right? I do not believe the U.S. Constitution is a living document. Okay? I don't think the framers meant it to be a living document. Thomas Jefferson, never mind, I won't get into that. Um, no. But what does it mean then that the Word of God, the revelation of God all throughout history, is living. Does it mean that it changes to meet the needs of the culture around it? Absolutely not. That's not what it means. We do not change the Bible to make it fit our culture. That's not what living here means. Living and active, okay? The Greek words are zao, zao, 
and energes, E-N-E-R-G-E-S, living and active. Zao has a great definition in Strong's Lexicon, and it means this. Living means having vital power in itself and exerting that same power upon the soul to be in full vigor, to be fresh, strong, efficient, active, and powerful. So when you're thinking living, think that. It's able to do, it has the power to do what it sets out to do. The other word is energase, and we, we get our word energy from it. And the Bible Sense Lexicon defends, defines active as effective, producing, or capable of producing an intended result. So let's pair those and talk and think about that for just a little bit. God's revelation of Himself, the Word of God, has vital power that it exerts upon the soul and it is effective to produce its intended result. To which I would say, yeah, boy. And just so we're clear, I said that the writer was not writing in reference to the Bible as we have it in our day and time, but for sure, the truth here certainly applies to the Bible as we have it. Paul says in a very familiar passage, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is breathed out by God, God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What makes the man of God complete and equipped for every good work? The Scriptures. Breathed out by God. And we are fully convinced in our view of the Bible that the Bible is the Word of God, so the scriptures referenced in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are the 66 books that we have in our completed canon as breathed out by God and listen to me and then superintended by God to bring those 66 books together to collect and bring them together as we have them. There's a lot of people that would fuss and fight and say, yeah, but how did they get these books? If God didn't superintend it, throw your Bible in the trash. But He did. And that's important. Do you believe if God had a revelation of Himself to give to people that He'd be able to bring it together in a way that was like, oh yeah, this is what I want. Who edited your Bible? God did. And that's important. That's very important. You said, well, man put it together and God superintended those men. You can say, I believe that God breathed it out and wrote it, but I'm not sure if He collected it together to give it to us in, in the way that we have it. I mean... If you're God, I think you can do that if you want to. And I believe you did wholeheartedly. I have no problem with the 66 books that we have being the canon, the completed canon that God intended for us to have as the Scriptures so that we can have the proper revelation of Him that He wants us to have. Mm -hmm. So, as we talk about the revelation of God in our passage today, we can definitely imply that what is being said can be attributed to our Bible as well as all the revelation from eternity past into eternity future, including also natural revelation in nature as well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So, that being said, the Word of God is living and active, having vital power that it effectively exerts to produce its intended result. That's living and active. Now, we see that this revelation is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, what's up with this analogy? Why would the writer describe the revelation of God as sharper than any two-edged sword? Well, what do you do with a sword? 
Me personally, I don't do anything with a sword. Okay? But if you were to brandish a sword, why would you have it? It's for war. It's for fighting. That's soldier stuff, right? You're not just roasting weenies with it. Before handguns, people carried swords, right? Hard to conceal that carry, right? You get the thing maybe down your leg and you're walking like that. It was personal defense. It was close, hand-to-hand combat stuff. So why would the revelation of God be compared to a sword at that time? Well, now remember, the writer is saying that the Word of God serves to help either show someone is saved or show that they're not saved. Rest or not rest? Belief or unbelief? Well, here, like a sword, the Word of God defends those who believe and fights those who do not. And it's not really even saying it's a sword. It's saying it's sharper than any two-edged sword. To be sharp is to have an edge or a point that can divide or separate something. And the sharper it is, the easier it is to divide. Try to make a hole in a piece of cardboard with a spoon. You can. It just takes a lot of effort, right? And then try to do it with a real sharp sword. How much effort does it take? Right? You ever seen people cut paper with something that's really sharp? Cutting paper. Cutting paper. That means it's sharp and it divides that paper very easily. Okay? The sharper something is, listen, the less effort it takes. As God has revealed Himself all through eternity and history, He has gotten more and more defined. We actually used to have sharpness controls on our TVs. Remember that? How sharp the picture was. Oh, there it is. Stop, stop, stop. Oh, yeah, that's great. Okay? When Jesus showed up, listen, y'all. The revelation of God was complete to the extent that Jesus could literally say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We don't have to wonder what God is like anymore. He's not veiled in fire and cloud and smoke up on Sinai anymore. We can see Jesus alone. The full revelation of God makes it clear who God is, makes it clear who His people are, It also makes it clear who aren't His people. In that sense, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. You can't get any sharper than God's revelation of Himself. I'll tell you who I am, God says. And in that sharpness, when one knows God through His revelation, the division between those who are His and those who are not is a, pardon the pun, clean-cut issue. I'm not ashamed of that. That was good. (laughs) Next, the writer says that the Word of God is piercing. To the division of soul and spirit. This is my favorite part. The sharp, clear revelation of God and His Word pierces. That word just means what it says. To pierce, to penetrate. But the sharp Word of God pierces like nothing else can. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit. Now, what's that mean? Two camps, generally, obviously weird. It's like everything's two, but not this. Um, Two camps of how people see human beings. You got dichotomists. Di meaning two. And so they say that the human being is body and soul. And that that soul infers spirit as well. Okay? I'm not a dichotomist. I'm a trichotomist. Okay, and they're not just me. I'm not the only trichotomist in the world. Okay, there are 
There are other weirdos out there like me. Trichotomists believe that the Bible teaches that human, humans are body, soul, and spirit. Okay, and remember, you ever had your flesh your gang sign before? Huh? Body, soul, spirit. Okay, why do I say that? So the body is the easy part, right? That's the corporal, fleshly stuff, the, the material stuff. The spirit. <clears throat> God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, the physical body. Then he breathed into Adam, and into his nostrils, the breath of life. That's the spirit that God sends. James says the body without the spirit is dead. Right? So that's the spirit. That's the part that that's the life that God gives us. But Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we quote it sometimes in our in our uh, benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So body, soul, and spirit, right? That's biblical. Body, soul, spirit. So the body's the physical part. The spiritual is the life that God gives. I, I believe when you look at the teaching of Scripture, and we've talked about this before back in Romans a long time ago, that soul is kind of the go-between between the body and the spirit. Okay? What we think and what we feel, that's why there's two fingers there. Okay? Our head and our heart. And what God wants to do is to commune with us in our spirit, and then what we think and feel line up with that so that then what we do with our bodies is a result of that. Okay? From the inside out. Now, before you were born again, I can't do it. You were dead spiritually. Okay? You had a life, but it wasn't attuned to God. You were an enemy of God. You weren't communing with God. And all you could do is respond to the outward cues, the physical cues. And so your soul, what you thought and felt, were directed by your body. Well, God comes in, makes your spirit alive, and now He says, I say this, and I say, well, I don't really like that so much, my emotions, or I, I never thought that before with my head. Well, then bring those together, work through here, and then do the things that God has said, and now you think and feel rightly about so that you're doing the right thing. Okay? You're like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> and I'd love to talk to you more about this. We just don't have time today. But if you want to, what we're going to eat later, if you want to stay and eat with us, I'll be glad to talk to you about it. So back here in Hebrews 4, the Word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, which makes me think they're two different things, Right? If non-believers are dead in their spirits, they can only go soul deep. But those born again have lives that engage the spirit as well. And the Word of God pierces and determines whether a person is soulical or spiritual. Physical, soulical, or spiritual. And again, it's the Word of God that determines this. The Word of God alone can get down to spirit level. Piercing all the way to determine whether or not someone is of the Spirit or not. Your physical desires can't do this. Your thoughts and your emotions can't get this deep. And please understand that. You're not smart enough to figure this out. You don't feel your way into the kingdom. Only the Word of God can determine and reveal that. Only the Word of God can pierce that deep. Which leads to the last part of the verse, which says that the Word of God is discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. On its penetrating journey down through soul and into spirit, the Word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. What I think and what I feel. 
That word discerning means to judge something. And here the Word of God judges what's going on in people's hearts and in their heads, in their feelings, in their intentions, in their thoughts. And this is what the revelation of God does. You can play act. You can put on a mask. You can do things to make people think you're good or pure or whatever. But your thoughts and intentions are down there in your heart. They're in your head where only you know what's really going on. But God knows. John, 24 and, John 2, 24 and 25 says this, But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to the people around Him because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in man. He could discern that, being the God-man. Jesus knew what people's thoughts and intentions were. Whatever mask they may have been wearing, Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them because He knew their motives, what made them tick. And the Word of God does that. I can say I want to please God, but the Word of God digs down deep and shows me what my true thoughts and intentions are. And this is powerful because, listen to me, you are in the middle of a battle with your flesh. And your flesh can deceive you. Your thoughts and your emotions can deceive you. Well, it's got to be true because I think this way. It's got to be true because I feel this way. Oh, no. No, no. Don't do that. I feel this way. Is it true compared with the Word of God? And if my feelings aren't telling me the truth, I've got to bring them in subjection to the truth of the Word of God. It's the Word of God that we're to line up with, not what we think and feel, not what we see and taste. We want to bring those things in line with the Word of God and only the Word of God can get that deep in us and tell us my thoughts aren't right here, my intentions aren't right, my affections aren't right. I need the Word of God to straighten me out, so to speak. So powerful. This is God working through showing Himself to mankind. And as He shows Himself to them, He's also showing themselves to them in comparison and contrast to who He is. And only the Word of God can do this. And He does it so very effectively. Let me see if verse 13 is NLT. Forgive my NLT. I know not what I do, okay? I'm not against the NLT. Please hear me say that. ESV, yay. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account if there's any 8th grade boy left in you, you see the word naked and you get a little bit, okay? It's alright. It's been a week of reading the word naked. And giggling. Just being honest. Revealing the thoughts and intentions of my heart, unfortunately. Um, but what a verse. I mean, right. What a truth to consider. Again, so much of what we're looking at today is the unique ability of the Word of God to determine those who are His and those who are not. Belief versus unbelief. Rest versus fear. Those who have and will enter God's rest and those who have and will not enter God's rest. Those who believe, those who do not. Well, as we've already seen and said, it is God and the revelation of Himself that determines this. And now we see that everyone... Literally every creature, everyone has to deal with this God and His revelation of Himself. And no creature is hidden from His sight, the writer says. Later in Hebrews, the writer will say, It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. 
Every man, every woman, every single one of us who live under the direct purview of God Himself. Every single one of us. And I'm not a fan of using that to scare people, but it is for real. Listen, God is watching you. Down to heart level. Into mind level. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what your intentions are. And He is watching. This really impacted me when we were studying Job. I don't know how long ago that's been. It's been a while. Job said this. Job is just tired of God watching him. What is man that you make so much of him? And that you set your heart on him? Visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? It can feel that way when we know that God's watching everything all the time, right? You don't get any rest from God watching you. It never reaches a point where you're like, okay, He can't see me now. Psalmist saw it a little differently though. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of Him and the Son of Man that you care for Him? Here's the other side of the coin. Job's like, it's enough. Give me, a, give me a break. Let me swallow my spit. Will you just look away I, long enough for me to swallow my spit? And, and the writer of the psalm is going, look at this. Who am I that you would even consider me? Psalmist saw it differently than Job did. Of course, Job was in deep, dark affliction, right? We've said earlier in Hebrews that the writer quotes this psalm this Psalm 8, to say that God has made man for a little while lower than the angels, but that God's ultimate plan for man is to reign and to rule with God. All things have been put into subjection under man's feet, the writer of Hebrews says, though we don't yet see this. Listen, a mystery that I don't understand. God is focused on man as a central part of His plan. And how does that make you feel? Do you feel like Job? Or do you feel like the psalmist? Yeah. Yes, right? Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, God, give me a break. And I shouldn't say that, but I do. It's when my flesh is really exerting itself. And I'm like, man, would you just look away for a second? Let me swallow my spit. And sometimes I'm like, why do you care about me at all? As wonderful and as great as you are. And as, I'm a little itty bitty tiny flea on the back of a something. Whatever fleas get on. God is focused on man as a central part of the plan of God. And that's great news. Right? It is great news. But it also puts man in the very crosshairs of God's attention. Every single one of us. Every single moment of our lives. No creature is hidden from His sight. God sees all of us all the time. God sees all of all of us. There's no hiding from God. But the writer says, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And that even ups the ante some in kind of like soul-crushing fear, doesn't it? I mean, really, literally, could there be anything more serious, more grave than this thought right here? Go back there. I'll get past Job again. 
All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we, all of us, must give an account. The writer's point is to up the ante. This is of the utmost importance to understand for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived upon planet Earth from Adam till the last person draws their last breath. Every single one of us is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. All are naked. This has nothing to do with clothes, by the way. It means there is nothing that separates us from the penetrating gaze of God. We cannot, and He has not, put anything between us and His gaze. We can't cover up in His presence and make it so that He can't see anything. He sees everything unveiled and in full view. All of us, again, have all of us exposed to His sight. Naked and exposed. Nothing hidden or covered up. His eyes see all. And in seeing, He's also calling all of these things into judgment. Naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, get that. I will, you will, we will scream for ice cream. No. Yes, but no. Every single one of us will give a personal account to God for our lives. Sit with that for a second. Naked, exposed, nothing hidden. We will, all of us, give an account to God. That's actually a pretty interesting Greek feature here in the original language. The word for account is, any guesses? Don't look at it, anybody got a guess? It's logos. The same word that is used for word in Word of God. The same word used for Jesus as the Word of God. The Word of God demands a word from you. Wowzers. Harris and Kostenberger. I just wanted to quote Andreas Kostenberger, and it's not true, it's just really good. They point this out literarily. Whereas Logos in verse 12 referred to God's Word, here the Word is attested in the commercial realm concerning accounting. The author likely intends upon God's Word demands a human account or a human word. Hmm. What will your account say that you have said about God's revelation of Himself? What will you say about what God has said about Himself? No. I don't believe you. Because that's what God's eye is watching for at this very moment. And that is what God's final judgment will be finally and fully about. And I quoted it just a few minutes ago, but I think the context here demands I'll quote it again. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. The natural God-given order of things is that a person lives, then dies, then is judged. And who judges them? Society? Culture? The government? God. 
God is the one who will judge. And what's he judging according to? The revelation of himself that he has given to every man, woman, child in creation. What do you say about what I've said? That's the judgment. What does your life say about what I've said? And his judgment will be what his eyes have seen. Unfiltered, unfazed by any protestations that we might make. He's seen it all from beginning to end. He knows the very depths of our hearts. We sing, we haven't seen it in a long time. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. He's seen it all from beginning to end. He knows the very depths of our hearts, our thoughts and intentions, and He will judge accordingly. (laughs) And as we finish up with this text and move toward application, I want to ask you a simple question. Not a therapeutic question. I'm not going to ask you how you feel about this. I don't care how you feel about this. And I'm not saying to be rude. Because your feelings aren't king here. They're not supposed to be king here. But this is the question that I want to ask you. How does it affect you? How does it hit you? When you get that kind of news, Tim McGraw asked. Man, what'd you do? Are you afraid? Are you thinking about that thing you thought about yesterday that you probably shouldn't have thought about? Well, God saw that. Are you ashamed? Are you worried? Upset? Are you mad at God? Because as I have said and will continue to say, the writer of Hebrews is not taking great pains so that he can scare those who are followers of Jesus. Now he is making a clear distinction between believers and non-believers, making it easy to see the difference between them. But, listen... Knowing that this is not meant to induce fear for followers of Jesus, how should this affect you? What should your reaction or response be? And we'll explore that a little more fully in application, but I think it's right that we look at it before we even get into application. Because that's, that's, we want to know what the writer is trying to accomplish as we look at this, right? And I would say if, if you're an unbeliever, You should read this passage and be very afraid. The writer of Hebrews will say later in his letter in 1031, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you are to stand before the creator and judge of the universe and you have no defense to present that's going to stand up under his scrutiny, you should truly indeed be afraid. Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice he didn't say destroy spirit. Your spirit lives forever in eternal torment in hell if you're an unbeliever. But that union between body and soul is gone. It's just you as an everlasting spirit for all eternity suffering. God will destroy bodies and souls in hell and spirits will remain in torment forever. So don't fear the one who can just kill the body. Fear the one who's going to destroy both body and soul and torment your spirit for eternity. Fear Him. So if you're an unbeliever, you should be afraid. You say, well, you're just trying to scare me. Yes, yes I am. 
I am trying to scare you. Actually, I'm not. But the revelation of God is clear that you should be very afraid of falling under the condemnation of this holy God who has revealed Himself fully. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the only one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You should be afraid of that if you're an unbeliever. But what if you're a follower of Jesus? How should this passage affect you? What's the writer of Hebrews trying to express to you? What's been the thrust since last week? The word is rest. Believer, read this today and rejoice and rest. God is the one who has spoken. God is the one who has implanted His Word in your heart. God is the one who has done and confirmed His work in and through you. He has done what He has done in order to bring us back into right relation with His revelation of Himself. To restore to us the right relationship with Himself that we saw with Adam and Eve before the fall in the garden. They were what? Naked and unashamed. As we will be when we stand before God for our final judgment. Why? Because we lived right? No. Our deeds will be judged as those that glorified God as they were performed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this passage should excite and motivate us knowing that we are hidden in Christ, clothed with His righteousness as the perfect, final, full revelation of God and His will. It is reason to rejoice now and forever knowing the complete revelation of who God is and what He has done to bring glory to Himself and good to His people. So when you think about the judgment of God, believer, rejoice and rest. And rejoice and rest in that as you ponder these verses, disciples of Jesus. Don't look at this and go, oh man, he knows what I thought. Absolutely he does. And in Christ, he has paid the penalty for those sinful thoughts, those sinful actions, every thought, every intention that is contrary to his word and his revelation, he has paid the penalty for. And I'm going to stand complete in him before the throne, we sang this morning. And I ain't going to lean on anything less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And the pronouncement will be, Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Enter into your rest. That's how we should read these verses if we're Christians. Not, uh uh-oh, God knows. It's like, praise God, He knows. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. So we turn our attention to application. Three W's. We're on the World Wide Web this morning. WWW. Word, way, W-E-I-G-H, and work. Word, way, and work. What do we do in response to this? That's the application part, right? Hopefully we've observed, we've interpreted, now we seek to apply. First application point is Word. I think it is safe to say from today's text and so many others, God has spoken. God has revealed Himself. Through both natural and special revelation, God has been revealing Himself from the beginning. 
That's good news. I don't have to wonder what God's like. I can go find out because He's spoken. And He's spoken in different ways. He's spoken through natural revelation. Oh, let me see if this is in the right frame. I hope it is. It is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. To who? Unrighteous men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, the unrighteous man, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you look out there, if you look at the stars, if you look at the cosmos, if you look down into quark level... And your conclusion is there's no God? You're without excuse. And you say, well, you're being mean. I'm saying flee from the wrath to come. I'm saying look at the revelation that has been given and come to God and say, how can I know you? Because I know you're there. Your invisible attributes have been evident since you spoke everything into creation. And there is not a man or woman who has ever lived who has an excuse for not knowing God. So that sounds mean. I'm not trying to be mean. His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Anybody wear glasses? I see some glasses out there. My goodness gracious, how do you keep them clean? It's the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced in my life. How do they get dirty? Rant over. (laughs) But here's the problem. We do let the world cloud our vision. Right? We hear worldly wisdom and we go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I can't even see God anymore. Now I've got to take these off. Make this a little bigger. (laughs) So they are without excuse. God has revealed Himself. God has spoken. But He didn't just speak the creation. That's general revelation. He has given special revelation. Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets and the law, I would say. But in these last days, 2,000 years ago, starting the last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe that was created perfectly by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God didn't just put creation up there and say, figure it out. You've got to figure out who I am now. He said, I'll show you who I am. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what Jesus does when He shows up is He shows us holiness and perfection and the law shows us that we can't do that and the prophets say, God's going to make a way that that, that can be done to, for, and through you. 
And then Jesus shows up and says, here it is. So the application is, look out there, see God. And look to Jesus and see God. Because He has spoken. He has revealed Himself. So that's word. Second is way. Now what we're talking about here is like, think of scales. The genuineness of your faith is going to be tested. And what's going to be the test that determines whether your faith is real or not? It's the Word. Your belief, your life is going to be weighed in the balance of the Word of God. God has spoken and God has revealed what it means to be saved. So here when we're talking about weighing in the balance, let God define what it means to be saved for you. Let His Word define what it means to be saved. And verify that. God will verify that down into your very heart. I'm not unsaved because I don't feel saved. I'm not saved because I feel saved. When things get upside down, only the Word tells us what God's will is. Don't be fooled by worldly philosophies or your emotions or your high-sounding arguments or these smart dummies out here who think they can tell you everything about everything. Yes, I did call them dummies, and maybe I shouldn't have. But we can get so smart, we're stupid. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be fooled high-sounding arguments, worldly philosophies, or your own emotions. Oh, we need this in our day and time so much because everything is being redefined. The Gospel according to George Orwell. He who controls the language controls culture. And our culture is seeking to redefine everything. But you can't do that with the Bible. Let the Word be what you weigh your thoughts and intentions against. Let the Word determine where your faith is, who your faith is in. Paul says this to Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And what, what was it that was given to Timothy? The apostolic teaching about who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and what all of it means for your daily life. Guard that deposit! Put your life and weigh that in the balance of it. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Your righteousness will be put in the balance and see if it measures up with Christ's righteousness. You can't do that yourself. It has to be because of faith in Christ that you are determined righteous. By grace, through faith, as revealed in the Scriptures, as seen in Christ, I miss Christ, as, as revealed in the Scriptures, to the glory of God alone. That's all that matters. That, will, that is not human, elemental spirits of this world. 
That is according to Christ. So put what you think, feel, believe, and do in the balance with the Word of God. And let that be what weighs your guilt or your righteousness. So finally, word, way, and works. Lastly, you will stand before God and give an account to Him. And I ask you again, does that bring comfort or does that terrify you? Because if it doesn't bring comfort, it should terrify you. Now let me ask you this. What will your word be to him for the word that he has given? What account will you give to him from what he has given to you? Your account, your final word must be Jesus and your faith in him and his finished work because nothing else is going to satisfy the righteousness or the wrath of God. Acts 17. I want to read this. and i got one more passage and we'll be done. Paul says to those in Athens, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's actually not far from each one of us. For, Athenians, in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, He commands all people everywhere. Please let Jesus into your heart. No. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day. Notice that. It's fixed. He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Ooh, that's strong, y'all. Like the Apostle Paul knew how to preach or something. Two camps. Rest or fear, belief or unbelief. What shows that? What was the application point? Anybody write it down? Remember? It's works. What's going to show what you believe? What you believe? What you do is going to show what you believe. Jesus says this in John 10. I'm sorry, Matthew 10, 34-39. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Heard that somewhere today, right? For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not about what you think and what you feel. Your works 
will be the account that you give to God. You're like, but I, I just got to believe, right? Yeah, you do. And your belief will produce works and it will be your works that are judged on that day. What did you do with God's revelation of Himself? Not how did you think about it? How did you feel about it? How did you reason it out and determine whether it's right or not? What did you do? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and He will place the sheep on His right but the goats on the left. Two camps. Divided by the Word of God Divided by the works that they did. Anybody ever hear the Keith Green? No, okay, I'll stop here. Well, at the end of that, you need to go look it up. Keith Green, Sheep and Goats. Keith Green says that they'll be divided according to what they did or didn't don't do. What you do is going to show who your faith is in. What you do is going, to deter- is going to show what you have determined about the revelation of God. His revelation of Himself. What you do will be the account that you present before God. Your word to Him about His word to you. God's revelation calls us to action. And we will be judged according to our deeds. That which was done by faith in Jesus produces deeds that glorify God. Those deeds that reject the revelation of God and say, I'll do it my way, Frank Sinatra, will be judged according to their deeds too, unfortunately. All to the glory of God. All according to the revelation that He has given of Himself. And this text today divides us into one of two camps. Rest and belief or fear and unbelief. And the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the Word of God alone makes that division. What will you do with the Word God has given you? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have not left us without a witness. We're thankful, God, that you have given us a full revelation of yourself. And we need not fear your judgment because we have been placed in Christ and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who have not placed their faith in Jesus, who have not seen that final full revelation of you and your glory in and through Him, would you by the power of your Spirit wake them up, give them life so that they can indeed see Jesus alone. Speak life, Holy Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Be seated. You're not dismissed. Let's say it was if you can. We do have... uh, a membership covenant to sign this morning. Don and Bob.